Welcome back to the USC Lifelong Learning Executive Education Series. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited to have a great guest with me today, Sarah Townsend, who is the Associate Professor of Management and Organization and Interim Assistant Vice Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the USC Marshall School of Business. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you, and I'm excited to dig in to today's topic of humanistic leadership and the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. And Sarah, I know you're an expert on a variety of topics in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, as well as an active behavioral scientist. What has your research revealed about some of the biggest challenges we have in the workplace today on, on some of these subjects? One of the things I've been thinking about most recently is, um, how how we can often get inclusion wrong or i wouldn't really say wrong but maybe we're we kind of are incomplete in our efforts there and so what some of the work that my team has done and and others in the field what we've um found is that people based on their own backgrounds their experiences that shapes their perspectives, right? So it shapes like the, we could say like their default assumptions about what it means to maybe be a good colleague or be a good boss or employee. And a lot of times in the workplace, when we think about inclusion, we're thinking, oh, well, we need to be nice, right? We need to, we want to treat others as we would want them to treat us, right? The golden rule. That seems like that, that's that got to be, the, the best way to get people to feel like they belong. But the problem is because we come from different places and we've had different experiences, we have different ideas about what it means to be a good employee or a good boss or a good colleague. And, and so the goal of um, inclusion isn't just to treat people how you wanna be treated, but to really figure out how they wanna be treated and treat them accordingly. Yeah, that's that's so important. And I actually wanted to kind of step back and broaden this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, because the topic has gotten a lot of attention in the media and the corporate world where I do a lot of work um, over the last couple of years, especially since the death of George Floyd and the rise of the social justice movement going back to May 2020. And certainly there were other many events, uh, many other events around that. Um, what how how would you explain what DEI is and why it's so important right now? So, I mean, I think. DEI has been important for a long time, and I think it will continue to be important. Um, it's certainly just getting a lot more attention right now than, than it has in the past. The way I think about it in, in a very short, sort of like the most concise way I can put it, is that it is about doing what is best for the company as well as doing what is right. Some parts um, are trying to reduce bias, right? If you are hiring people because they meet, match some kind of prototype or assumption that you have about what it means to be a good employee, as opposed to hiring someone who is a little bit different from a different background, took a different path to get to where they are, but maybe is more qualified, letting that bias your decision is both not what is best for the company and it's not what is right 
in a sort of larger sense either. And so being able to kind of lead in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really about trying to do both of those things. It's, it's not just, a lot of times I think people think of it as like this, um, this moral good that we need to do, which is part of it for sure. Um, but it's not only about helping people who um, have been disadvantaged. It is also about doing what is best for the company. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the business implications, um, but just sticking with those definitions, you know, I think before 2020, there was a big focus on diversity by a lot of companies. You know, we want to increase the number of black employees we have or create more diversity when you look across the population so it doesn't look mm -hmm. all the same. But what we've learned, of course, is that inclusion is just as, if not more important, right. something you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. So can you talk about the difference and why inclusion is so important that we can't just have diversity? It doesn't solve problems. I, <laughs> so I think diversity, sure, is there. there's kind of lots of little quick little things that people talk about, like diversity is... Um, being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance, right? Um, and and diversity is counting heads and inclusion is making heads count and those kinds of things. I think what researchers realized and now organizations are beginning to realize is that you can have diversity is great for a lot of reasons and you can hire a diverse workforce, but you're not going to reap any of the benefits of diversity if you don't also have equity and inclusion. So if you are, let's say you're trying to increase gender diversity in your executive team, you can do that, but that might be increasing diversity if you have more, more of a gender balance. But if you are not paying women as much, right? If that equity is not there, you're not going, they're, they're gonna leave. And if they aren't fully included, meaning feeling like they belong, feeling like their uniqueness is valued, then they're not going to be offering new ideas, new perspectives, which is in one of the major points of diversity. That's the whole deal is we have these different perspectives, bring them together, and we, we innovate and we create new things and we solve problems better. And so just having a bunch of people together, having that diversity is just the first step in terms of like a complete DEI sort of strategy or leadership. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, you know, the idea of creating an innovative culture, I think you for innovation, you want to have different uh, thought processes, different types of uh, people. You want to have people from different backgrounds, different ideas, uh, but if they're not included in the conversation, it's not going to matter, right? You're not going to get those ideas. You're not going to be able to innovate. So I think inclusion is so, so important for innovation. I know you probably agree. Oh yeah. And I think, I mean, a lot of companies focus on diversity in part because it's easier. It's very easy to measure. It's quick mm -hmm. to measure. You can sit, you can look at your workforce on day one, you can look at it three months later, six months later and see the change, right? But something like inclusion is a little bit harder to gauge. It's, it, in my opinion, is harder to foster. Um, but the payoff is huge, right? The payoff in terms of having people, you know, really feeling 
a sense that they can offer their honest suggestions, the good ones and the bad ones, yeah. so that so that then you get the full breadth of people's experiences and perspectives. And, and it's, it's through the combination of those things that really the sort of great things come. We've touched on this a little bit already, but I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to have an inclusive culture? And why is that important in business beyond just making feel, people feel good and including their mm -hmm. ideas? I imagine mm -hmm. there's got to be a business case for this as well. Sure. I mean, I think inclusion is, I think of it as, as being con consisting of two things. So one is belonging. Um, and that people really feel like they're a part of the organization, like they are really insiders in the organization. And that's very critical. Um, but it's not just that. It is also about feeling like you are belong in the organization, but also that you're valued for whatever makes you different, right? So um, people want you to be there and they, it's not that they are just tolerant of the fact that you're different, but they, they value that. That's, that is part, they yeah. really appreciate it. That's part of what, what they want from you is to bring your difference to work. And so I think with a lot of times organizations will see, you could end up with kind of pseudo inclusion where pe you get people who maybe seem like they really belong, but they're kind of assimilating right, to the, whatever the dominant way to be is. Um, or you can see people who are kind of standing out and being their, their different self, but they're not fully integrated and, and fully belong in the organization. Yeah, absolutely, um, makes sense. And, yeah, and so it's really those two things and you can see them in how meetings are run, right? You can see them and how, do people disagree in the meetings? Or is it kind of, oh, okay, you know, do people, are the junior people speaking in the meetings? Are, or is it just the sort of senior level folks and all the junior people are there nodding? So you can kind of see it in how people behave. And, you know, I think the business case for inclusion is pretty straightforward in terms of increased employee engagement and performance. In, in some ways it's not new. It's just that it's harder to really foster true inclusion when you have more diversity, mm. right? So it's not, it kind of makes sense. If you have a bunch of people who are exactly the same, very similar background, very similar age, then, you know, there's some individual differences in personality, sure. But the more similar folks are, it's kind of easier for people to feel like they are their true self and their, you know, whatever, and also that they belong and you don't have to kind of negotiate and learn about each other and, and perspective take um, in the way that you do when you meet someone who's, who has had a very different life experience and is approaching a problem from a very different vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of this analogy. It's almost like if you've got a group of people and you're ordering lunch and you just know that everybody likes Thai food or right. hamburgers or whatever, it's very easy <laughs> to order lunch for everybody. But if you have yeah. to really, everybody has different preferences, you have to really get to right. know people and find right. some common ground that will allow people to get along. It makes it right. more difficult and challenging, but it's more rewarding in the end. Yeah. 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 I love that. That's a great analogy. 
Um, something we hear a lot about related to this is this idea of unconscious bias and how that's one of the things that's really still causing a lot of challenges and problems uh, in the mm -hmm. workplace. Mm -hmm. um, wh what is this and how can we as individuals, you know, raise more awareness and, and help solve the problem here? To really get rid of it, I don't know that that's a goal. Like, I don't know that's a feasible goal because the where unconscious bias comes from is our the way our cognitive processes just work, right? We make categories out of everything and then we attach meaning to those categories. The problem though, is that where a lot of the kind of intergroup bias comes from is, you know, if we just attach cat like meaning to different categories, sort of like, well, that's not necessarily problematic, but the meaning that we attach to the categories of people comes from the society that we live in. So to the extent there's inequality that you can, that you observe in society, that you observe in media representations and movies and news coverage and all of that, then the associations that you will create are going to reflect that inequality and be biased. It's really that like intergroup bias is really in the same family as all the other decision-making biases, mm -hmm. confirmation bias and availability bias and all of these, um, all of these other things that generally serve us, but sometimes yeah. don't. They help us make decisions, right? I right. Mean, you know, when you see a hot stove, you don't have to touch it to find out. Like you, you just know right. from experience and learning. Right. We have these things in our minds all the time that help us navigate the world quicker. Right. No, I mean, if you could imagine every time you go up to a wall trying to figure out, is that the door? Is this the door here? How do <laughs> right. I get? Right. right? It, we wouldn't be able to function in the world. Right. And so we need these shortcuts, but we use these shortcuts then about everything and that's where it steers us wrong. Can, sorry, before we go further, can we give an example of a couple of these like shortcuts that are, you know, you mentioned like running into the wall, but then we get to the unconscious bias, the, the problems that occur in, in the workplace from it. The easiest way to see it is in um, what I'll call organizational gateways. So like decision points. It's easier to see bias when you like have a specific decision, like hiring someone or calling someone back when they've submitted their resume. And there are a large number of audit studies now that show we can send resumes, thousands of resumes out to companies in response to job wanted ads and vary just the name on the resume so that it is um, sort of stereotypically white or stereotypically black and then get different callback rates. And so that's one, one place that we can see it. And it's biased because the qualifications on the resume are the same, right? And so unless you decided, the company explicitly decided, no, we need people with white sounding names. <laughs> right. Which is not right. Then it's a bias. Which would be and illegal. They, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which would be illegal. Um, good to know. But really, in terms of how people are treated inequitably in the workplace, um, it it runs the whole gamut. So it's also performance reviews. Um, for example, there's work showing that women are given more 
in negative feedback, they're given more feedback about their personality as opposed to developmental feedback that's actually helpful. So mm -hmm. people will say things like, oh, well, your tone in the meeting, you should really watch it. Compared to for a male, they might say something like, you know, it would be helpful if you included more details in your presentations, right? They're both critical feedback, but one is like, well, how am I supposed to improve my tone? Like, you know, and then things like the tasks that people are assigned. So are you given the kind of glamour work stretch projects that puts you in front of leadership? Or are you given the kind of housework, planning meetings, taking notes during the meetings, that kind of thing? Yeah, makes sense. And you were starting to go down the, the road of addressing this. And I think one of the things you were starting to say is that we're not necessarily going to change this, right? This is natural human psychology that we have these unconscious biases, but we can raise more awareness about this and, and try to do things to mitigate the effects in our organizations, right? Right. So what I would say is you can't, you can't get rid of all bias, there's just not, I, I don't think we should have that as a goal. You can do some things. And the way that I approach it is what, I'll, what I call a multi-level approach to bias reduction. And so essentially what this means is we can think about organizational life as at least three levels. So there's the individuals that work there. Then there's how those individuals interact. And then there's the policies and practices that the organization has in place, formal and formal. In order to effectively reduce bias, you have to think about how to intervene at multiple levels. You can't just intervene at the individual level. There are some things you can do, raise awareness about bias, give people um, strategies for, for kind of changing some of their associations. Right, intergroup contact is very helpful. Having people form friendships across social group boundaries—that's um, that is something that can reduce your bias or, or change the association that you have with different groups if you meet people from those groups. But if you just do that in an organization, right? If you just bring in people who you know, bring in someone who teaches about bias, and and you can get people who are really committed to being less biased and doing the right thing and doing the thing that's best for the organization. But you might not really move the needle very much if, for example, you have biased policies or practices. So you might say, we wanna recruit a more diverse incoming group of associates. Sure, people might be very motivated for that, but if your hiring practices are such that you're only recruiting from certain schools or you're requiring certain internships or relationships or it's all network referrals, those practices are biased and you're not going to make the impact that you want. So in order to really um, sort of address bias within an organization, you have to think about coupling any kind of intervention or initiative that changes individual hearts and minds with an intervention or initiative that changes policies and practices. Um, and we can also think about changing the interaction level too in terms of, and this is in part where inclusion comes in, in terms of how people speak with each other, how sort of psychological safety, um, creating stronger um, social relationships between people at work, that kind of thing. Yeah, makes sense. 
Um, almost every big company now has a person or a department or program uh, dedicated to DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. But this is also something that really needs to be ingrained in the culture, I've found, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit. What role do individuals and especially leaders play? And you talked about this a little bit mm -hmm. with regards to getting, you know, dealing with unconscious bias um, in achieving more or better diversity, equity, inclusion in our organizations. So everyone has a role to play. And I think where we go wrong is if we just see it as only one person's problem. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly, if you think about the way you got to think about it is like any other core organizational task. The whole point of the organization is you need a bunch of different people to make whatever product, service. And so everyone does something different, but they all come together to, to create this organization and, and serve clients or create products, sell to customers. And in terms of fostering an environment where there's inclusion, everyone has to do their part. Certainly, uh, culture is very much set by leaders, and they have an outsized role in um, putting in place some of the policies and practices that I mentioned that are not biased. However, if for a lot of the people that I talk to, you know, sometimes I talk to CEOs and sometimes and executives and team managers and all that. And sometimes I talk to people who are, who've been in their, been in the workforce for a few years and, you know, they may or may not be managing one or two people. And they say, well, what, what can I do though? Right. I feel like I'm, I'm the lower person here. Do I really have a role? How can I you know, it's all about like whether they're including me, right? Mm -hmm. And although certainly leadership is more on the hook, if when you're starting a new job or just, you know, you've been there and you just want to kind of push things and make a change, you can do a lot to foster at least inclusion within your colleague relationships, right? And so you can ask people to have coffee, you can you can um, try and learn about them at a more personal level and, and, and try and share things about yourself and, you know, walk to a meeting together as opposed to just, you know, walking yourself, walking by yourself and then sitting down. Those things, they're small, but they can really be helpful in starting to create the community and inclusion. Yeah, not to mention leading with curiosity, asking more questions and empathy, right. getting to know people, asking how they like to work and be recognized and, uh, you know, whether they feel included. And sometimes these are hard questions to ask, but you can get some great answers to help you mm -hmm. uh, build a better culture. Mm -hmm. um, how, how does this fit into humanistic leadership, this idea of humanistic leadership? And um, can you talk to me about some of what you teach at USC and why this is important for, you know, business overall? You know, one of the main things for humanistic leadership, at least in my mind, is self-awareness. And it's so incredibly hard to actually be self-aware, but I honestly think you cannot be fully self-aware um, and aware of how you are impacting others if you don't have a good understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I just, I don't think you can kind of really like fully embrace humanistic leadership and say, oh, but DEI is something separate. Mm 
Mm. They're, they're very integrated and integral to each other. Likewise, I don't know that you can really lead well in the DEI space if you don't have um, at least some core tenets of humanistic leadership. Yeah, makes sense. And this is important that we talked about culture and innovation and all the things that can come from this. And so many businesses are benefiting from right. implementing policies and creating more of an inclusive culture. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of progress out there in the business world, which is great. Um, this is also being discussed in business school. Um, mm -hmm. The last question for you, uh, Sarah, what role do you see lifelong learning playing in the success of business professionals? Um, and you know, why is it important that we're having these conversations uh, and that people are continuing to invest in their own continuous learning? Mm -hmm. um, I think I think this is such an important point. And life's um, a journey, not a destination, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, I think that's true. Uh, I think it can feel for some of the undergrads and, um, and, and some of the MBA students too, it can feel like a destination. It feels like, okay, I've made it to USC and then I, I'm going to do well here. And then I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get my MBA. I'm going to, you know, pivot in my career. And then I will, then, you know, like that will be it. But I think the problem there, and this relates to some work on mindsets by Carol Dweck and, and her team, I think it's this performance goal kind of fixed mindset that a lot of people tend to have where we think, oh, we just, I need to like master something and then that's it. I will, I will know it and I will be able to perform and demonstrate my competence. And there's certainly times for that and, and having some of that is good, but it limits you because you, you don't wanna take on new things. You don't wanna push yourself because you don't, you don't want to fail at all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the problem though, is that the real major jumps, and I mean this both in terms of an organization's innovation, but also in terms of your own sort of personal growth, those jumps come when you try something new and they come when you learn. And so what this research shows is that having a growth mindset where you're focused on learning goals instead of performance goals has huge implications, positive implications for so many different domains in your life. It's something that's helpful for, you know, I have a first grader. It's something that's helpful for him as he's starting school. It's something that's helpful for my parents as retirees who are kind of in that chapter of their life. And just learning something new, challenging yourself, not being afraid of failure. And so I see, you know, this lifelong learning as being, as going hand in hand with, with a growth mindset that I think really allows companies and individuals to thrive. Yeah. I agree with you hundred um, percent big on having a growth mindset. Of course, you referred to uh, the concept of mindset from Dr. Carol Dweck, who wrote the book, Mindset, New Psychology for Success, which was a game changer for me um, as a business person in my career, even as a parent. And this idea of having a growth mindset and knowing that we can always be learning and growing, we can always be improving. And therefore we need to keep investing in our learning and growth so that we can keep up with the times and, and uh, be ready for whatever's coming in the future. Uh, Sarah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your insights and wisdom with us today. And I look forward to talking with you more in the future. Yes, thank you very much. It, it was fun, Andy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Lifelong Learning Series. 
You can find more information by visiting our website at execed.marshall.usc.edu. That's execed.marshall.usc.edu. Thank you again for listening, and we hope to see you in a class soon.